Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The death of a loved one or friend is always painful. Emotions can run high and it can hurt even more if the death was unexpected. There isn't a scale to measure one's suffering, but if there was, a friend or family's death by suicide may be the most tragic circumstance of all, partly because it leaves survivors asking why and if they could have done anything to prevent it. September is Suicide Prevention Month, and it is the topic of today's Smart Talk. Joining us on the program today is Brandon Marcico, who is the board chair of the South Central Pennsylvania chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and Dr. Ahmad Hamid, a psychiatrist and director of the adult residency program at the Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center's College of Medicine. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Scott. This is one of those programs where we'd like to hear from you. Questions, comments. This is a rebroadcast of Smart Talk. We're not taking calls this hour, but we welcome your thoughts at WITF.org. WITF.org. If you don't want to use your real name, you don't have to. just, you know, we try to respect your privacy out there, but uh, uh, depending on how much information you want to divulge, you want to talk about, uh, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or again, send an email to smarttalk at org. 41,000 Americans took their own lives in 2013. That's the last year in which we have statistics. Those, actually, those numbers have actually uh, stayed fairly constant over the last decade or so, but what are the factors that have led to so many people who have died by suicide? Um, Scott, once again, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come and talk uh, on this important subject. Our thoughts and prayer for uh, listeners who have lost their loved ones over the last number of years. It's a very important topic. Coming back to your question, what are the reasons? The most common reason uh, the most common cause of suicide, or suicidality as we call it in the area of research, uh, has been uh, mental illnesses. About 90 to 95% of folks who uh, end up losing their lives uh, uh, have a diagnosable or treatable mental health disorder. Uh, it does not mean, let me just make sure uh, we are on the same page. All folks who have mental health disorders do not commit suicide, but majority of the people who commit suicide um, and to lose their uh, battle to suicide have a diagnosable or a treatable mental health disorder. Uh, about 5 to 10 percent of the folks uh, uh, who end up taking their lives have uh, acute causes, for example, uh, a financial loss, uh, loss of a loved one, uh, being in a situation of not their creating where under duress and stress um, uh, they end up taking their own lives. It's a very uh, tragic event, and as you mentioned, about 40,000, 41,000 folks commit suicide uh, uh, on a yearly basis. The numbers have been, actually, the numbers were low till the start of 2000, and then they started uh, creeping up as uh, the economic stress. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Why, why is that? Yes. As the economic stress on general population increased, the numbers start, started creeping up. And I think they, they started from 2000 onwards and they have been going up. Um, so again, it, it's something that has happened, that has been happening. Um, we, are doing a, we are doing our best uh, to control the numbers, to cut down the numbers. And the best thing that we could do is uh, educate uh, and discuss this openly rather than uh, um, uh, just dealing with the numbers at the back end. See, I, I, at times that I've talked about this on the air, 
I'm hesitant to use numbers because 41,000 people, that's 41,000 people. That's not a statistic. That's not, a, you know, those people were not statistics for their families, for their friends, for those people, those people died. And, you know, for us to toss around the numbers, it's just there to give people an idea of how prevalent, how often it does occur. But at the same time, we have to remember that uh, when I say that, I'm, I'm like preaching to the choir here, is that uh, those 41,000 people each had their individual lives, families, friends, their own problems. Everyone was different. You're absolutely right. And again, um Another way, you're talking about numbers over here. Another way is one every 13 minutes or so. So just look at this impact, a person taking their lives every 13 minutes in the United States. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a huge number, and as, as you have said, it affects each individual has a family, and it affects the whole family. And the question that uh, family members ask us is why? What could we have done to prevent this? And again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, education, education, education is the most important thing to help with either folks who are thinking about it or family members who can see their um, loved ones struggling and to identify where to call for help. Uh, Brennan, you're the board chair of the South Central Pennsylvania chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, you probably, not just you individual, but your organization, at least in this region, probably have a, as good a handle on what is happening around the region, the number of people, the number of families, the number of friends, people who are affected by this. What's your sense of it? Absolutely. Um, what we are looking at is just kind of touching on the, when we talk about the numbers, one of the important things of knowing what we're dealing with and the easiest way to prevent that is to know what has happened in the past. And that goes with any any problem, quote unquote, that you need to solve. You have to know what's causing that problem to move forward. Right now, as I look at the statistics for Pennsylvania as a whole, it's the first leading cause of death for children aged 10 to 14. So we have to look at those deaths by suicide for the 10 to 14 year old range and figure out why was this? Can we find an answer? And that's where groups like Penn State, Hershey Penn State Psychiatry come into play. People, you know, there are a lot of people hearing just what you said, and I had seen those statistics. Uh, and there are probably people out there saying, what problems do a 10 to 14 year old have that they would want to end their own life? There, there's many diagnosable mental illnesses in children of that young age. We, we look at that, that demographic and we think, you know, they're, they're doing their math homework and they're starting to, you know, come into themselves. They're going through puberty. Their bodies are changing. They're learning more about themselves. And, you know, we have the conversation with our children, you know, where does it hurt? You know, does your arm hurt? Does your chest hurt? Do you have a headache? But we're not having that conversation with our children What's going on in your mind? How are you feeling? What is making you feel sad? We have a program with AFSP. It's one of our our premier education program, and it's called More Than Sad. And it teaches our school personnel what to look for. How do how how can you help 
this child and know that they are more than sad. Even though we were just talking about 10 to 14-year-olds, Dr. Mead, that actually is not the age group that uh, is taking their lives by suicide the most often. It's actually older people, correct? Yes, it's older people. Um, it's older people. The highest uh, uh, rate of suicide is between the ages of 45 and 65. And the next highest is uh, uh, 85 and older. So it's the older people who are committing uh, 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 suicide more often. Um, the adolescent, it's about 5,000 uh, suicides per annum out of uh, 40, 42,000. So the number is um, much less. It's uh, the highest risk, um, the data has shown, it. the highest risk of suicide is, is in the elderly population. Why? Um, and here are the risk factors. Um, somebody who is of age, 40 to 65, maybe older, white, single, does not have uh, a lot of social support, uh, maybe divorced, financially struggling, mental health issues, constitute a, a, a group which is at the highest risk. We know there are lots and lots of protective factors. You asked the question why. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, a diagnosable mental health disorder, depression, major depressive disorder, a standardized mortality ratio is the highest for somebody um, who is uh, suffering from uh, uh, major depressive disorder and commits suicide. Um, bipolar disorder, uh, schizophrenia, anxiety disorder, substance use and abuse disorders. So these are the disorders which are linked with uh, a higher suicide rate. Identifying these disorders, treating them aggressively uh, would reduce the risk of suicide. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the other risk factors, for example, um, a lack of social support, um, financial issues, um, being a single, um, the, these are other risk factors that we as uh, folks who are interacting with them or family members who, who, who see them can say, okay, this person not doing well, uh, looks a little blah, has has been uh, not functioning well, was was working, but it's now it's not working, was a social person, now he is isolating. Those are red flags that should go up. And again, for the person themselves and for family members, um, including, where they can come and talk to someone and seek help. You know, I worry about this person. Could you kindly have a look? see what's happening, or going to the person and saying, okay, are you okay? Do you need something? And one of the myths that we have, uh, again, um, both in uh, uh, the clinical field and also in, in, in general population is that if you talk to someone who is thinking of taking their lives, you would encourage them yeah. Uh, to, to follow it's like through. the power suggestion. Uh, absolutely. Like that. You're yeah. absolutely yeah. right. And that is not the case because these folks, we have, uh, we have dealt with them on many different occasions. They are just looking for, a, for somebody to talk to them so they can unload uh, and they can seek help. It's, it's very unfortunate. So talking to folks and asking them directly, do you have any thoughts of hurting or harming yourself? Is that something that we could do or I could do to help you is very, very important. So this high risk group um, is there. Mental health disorders are there. They are treatable. Um, 
sources are available. Um, again, but it, it's up to us to educate uh, the public um, to make sure that they can prevent such events from happening. Treatment for depression, major depressive disorder, treatment for bipolar disorder, treatment for schizophrenia or anxiety, they are standard treatments. We have them. Uh, it's just um, uh, going and getting those treatments. That That's the most important. Um, even now, mental illness, it's considered taboo. It's, it's a subject. It's a stigma. Hey, hold on there, because I want to talk sure. about that. Yeah. Brandon, I saw you shaking your head vigorously as uh, Dr. Hameen was talking. Absolutely. The, the word stigma in and of itself, I find to be a stigma sometimes. The, when you talk about suicide, as you, as you both said earlier, there's automatically that fear from somebody that talking about is going to give them an idea. There are, there are safe ways to talk about suicide, and it's not just in the instant where you're intervening. There are ways to talk about sharing your own story. Um, I, I'm very public about my own uh, mental illness and attempts at suicide. And I, I know that my story helps people who are struggling. I have you know friends constantly reaching out to me through social media, both personally and through AFSP, and just asking, what do I do? Where do I go? You know, and, and one thing that I like to push is if you are struggling, there is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a hotline that you can call, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, or 8255. We have that on our website, by the way, wytf.org, and have a link to your website with other resources, too. Great, absolutely. Our website is is a wealth of information for anybody. You'll find everything from statistics um, to where our research is going, where the funds are coming from. Every Just about every community in our country right now, we have over 350 community walks. Uh, we just completed one here in Harrisburg um, back on September 12th, raised just around $90,000, which is, is funds that will stay primarily locally. We have another walk coming up in Carlisle on October the 18th. It's a Sunday walk at Dickinson Park. And those funds help us prevent, intervene, and also and deal with postvention. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the suicide today. This is part of WITF's Transforming Health Initiative. To learn more about suicide, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transformingthehealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, and WellSpan Health. Joining us as our guest today, Dr. Ahmad Hamid, a psychiatrist and director of the Adult residency program at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center's College of Medicine, and Brandon Marcico, uh, the board chair of the South Central Pennsylvania chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We welcome your phone calls, your questions, your comments. This is a rebroadcast of Smart Talk. We're not taking calls this hour, but we welcome your thoughts at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Here's one that I, an email that I want to get to. As, as quickly as we can. Uh, this gentleman sent an email saying that uh, he's 75 years old, has bipolar disorder, and is currently taking meds to control it. His wife died two months ago. He can't get rid of suicidal thoughts. No children, brother, brother and sister-in-law more than 750 miles away, haven't seen one another in almost 10 years, uh, talk and write infrequently, lives in retirement community but doesn't fit in. He's agnostic, almost no local ties. Most friends live abroad. 
have two regular activities, exercising and translating scientific articles. He asked for suggestions. Um, before we go into the details, I, I think the most important thing for this gentleman is uh, that uh, he needs to contact crisis. He needs uh, to go to the nearest emergency room to be evaluated. If he's established with mental health uh, services, he needs to contact his mental health provider and let them know. If he cannot, he needs to let us know and we can make arrangements so f for him um, to go to the nearest uh, emergency room for him to be evaluated. I think that's the starting point. His safety is of utmost concern to us, and I think th those are the starting points. Now, he's in a retirement community. There should be medical personnel just down um, the hall, right? Uh, absolutely, and he needs to let them know as soon as possible. They will make all the arrangements. Again, he, it's... Uh, it's uh, as we talked about earlier, a classic case of what we were just discussing of a high-risk patient. Elderly, white, male, poor social support, recent loss, mental health diagnosis, uh, nobody around him. Uh, I, I think uh, he needs to uh, either talk to uh, the, uh, the folks who are in his facility, the social workers or the providers there, or let us know what we can do on, on his behalf. Uh, again, it's important he should not, he should, we should make sure, and he should make sure that he's safe. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, just for the gentleman who's listening, just know that, you know, while in the moment right now, that's the thought because things seem to be tough. Um, just just know that it, it does get better. There are there are resources out there. Uh, you've already taken the first step, which is, is treating your uh, diagnosed mental health disorder with with medication. Um, just know that it, it's there to help you. Um, and maybe there just needs to be some adjustments made with your with your your care plan. So please, please take the advice, walk down the hallway, call 911, go to uh, uh, the emergency room, but uh, please t take advantage of the advice and, uh, uh, and see what we can uh, do. Absolutely. Help is there, and again, uh, the, uh, it would get better. Help is there, it would get better. All right, let's take a phone call here from, let's see, who is this? Good Mountain View, Mike. Mike, you have a question about the statistics. Yes. Hello, Mike, are you there? Yes, yes. Oh, oh, go ahead. Your phone's cutting in and out, Mike. I, I, I oh. think I can. I think I can translate your question, though. Your question: the statistics are they based upon death certificates? Uh, what about accidents? I'll, I'll try to. I hope that's what you were you were asking. Those statistics, how are they uh, they based? Okay, uh, those are based on the actual data collected through the coroner's office. Uh, and again, uh, every death has to be labeled, and the these are the numbers that we get. Uh, could some deaths be missed, which were actually a suicide and were not recorded? Absolutely. Um, but uh, again, as uh, uh, we, we talked about the numbers, let me just throw out. Uh, more than half of the folks, again, this is data and uh, uh, um, it needs to be taken as 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 data. More than half of the folks who commit suicide use firearms. Another one fourth uh, commit suicide by hanging. Uh, about sixteen percent or so uh, commit suicide by 
overdosing on 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 something. So the reason why I brought this in into uh, the numbers and uh, the data is because again, the, these are the causes which are easily identifiable. So the data that comes out of uh, um, uh, the actual suicides, it's pretty much in uh, in line. Uh, so what I was going to say, I was going to interrupt for just one moment, that what you just mentioned with firearms, with uh, something that can be ingested, hanging, you try to make it, if there is a suspicion that someone is uh, in crisis, you try to remove all that from the home as much as you can, but especially firearms. Absolutely. I, and it, I tie that into drunk driving. If you have a friend or family member who is visibly intoxicated, what's the first thing you do? You take their keys away from them. You don't. You you restrict the means. Um, and there's the conversation that you know. Well, if we take away the gun, then they they may die by another means. But that's not always the case. Sometimes if you restrict their initial thought process, uh, you you change the idea. And another thing on statistics, um, it, it's something that we're looking for legislation to cover now. Where where there's the National Violent Death Reporting System, uh, which appropriates funds and helps the statistics side of everything, um, and it helps us to collect data from all 50 states. It could also help us bring suicide statistics currently. Right now, here in 2015, almost 2016, we're still talking about 2013 data. Um, mm -hmm. So funding of MD MDDRS would greatly help that. We have another email here. Uh, says, I have a 14-year-old son who has been rebellious, withdrawn, and failing in school. He spends hours on the computer and prefers to stay at home and not go out of the house much. I tried to get him help, but when I took him to the doctor, he shut down and refused to talk to the doctor. He told me that he will not talk to anyone. I don't know what I can do at this point since he refuses to talk to anyone. Any suggestions? Okay. Uh, again, uh, it's important uh, to... It's a very difficult situation. Um, you have a young teenager um, who is uh, not talking. Uh, first thing to identify is are there any mental health issues? Sometimes we as parents are not, uh, uh, we, we, we don't uh, look at those signs and symptoms that a professional might. We're too close to it. Yes, we are too close. So having him evaluated by uh, a, a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist or, or a therapist would be the first starting point, even though he even if he's not talking, but making that contact and keeping that contact more than one time would most probably be a very easy uh, starting thing to do. Keeping an eye on the risk factors is important. Is important again, as as we said, I, I think uh, in United States there is uh, one adolescent who, who commits suicide every 90 minutes or so. I think that's the number, if if my memory serves me right. So keeping an eye on the risk factors, establishing him with the uh, mental health services, he might need them, he might not need them, but at least have a professional have a look at him to see if there are areas of concern or not. One area I noticed that you didn't mention, but it is a risk factor, is the use of or the abuse of alcohol and drugs. Absolutely. Uh, again, uh, might be politically incorrect, but uh, let me make a, um, a statement. All of us, um, with or without mental illness, under the influence of uh, alcohol and drugs, if one uses, make, how should I put it, um, make decisions or do things that we regret. People who use it 
have done it and so on and so forth. So add to that mental health uh, issues, add to that uh, propensity for suicidality, and you are multiplying, you are multiplying um, uh, the risks over here. Um, very smart people under the influence of substances have done things that they regret. And if you bring in mental health, if you bring in somebody who is sad, depressed, nervous, anxious, you're impairing their functioning, impairing their functioning and judgment, and people do things uh, that unfortunately leads to a bad uh, outcomes in, in, in these situations. You are absolutely right. Brandon, you said uh, earlier in the show, and we talked before the program, mm -hmm. that you said that you make no secret that uh, you uh, made two attempts on your life once when you were very young and then uh, a little bit uh, older. Tell us about it. We, we have used the term classic case. I, I, I don't really like to use that, but for in layman's terms, you know, I was a young impressionable we were not a very wealthy family we were extremely close um, it, it was in no way shape or form anything that my 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 parents my family had done wrong um, I was just a very depressed lonely kid I we we moved from to Pennsylvania um, at a young age I you know was uplifted from where I was used to at, at nine ten years old um, you know and you just go through the changes your body changes your mind changes um, and I I just I never rolled with it I, I kind of just kept myself to myself and on the outside and at family events and um, maybe even in school somewhat I was a little bit more outgoing but I was an overweight kid I, you know I was I was coming to terms with my my sexuality um, and I was experimenting with many different things and it it just it, I came to a point in my life where I just felt like I had no purpose there was nothing for me there and that's when I had my first attempt and then you kind of I don't want to say you grow up from it, but you you kind of come from it. You learn from it. You you realize the, you know what was going on. You've identified the errors. You've you're treating the mental illnesses, and then I, I came into the adult age where drugs, alcohol became more accessible, and and I fell back into that stage of I have no purpose. What am I doing here? You know, why am I even alive? Why did I make it through the first one? And then suicide started becoming more talked about, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And it I kind of just came to the mind frame that there was no more me. I wasn't who I was. I didn't even know who I was, so I couldn't identify that anymore. And you know, I I had a, a drug overdose. That was that was what I had chosen was was just loading up on synthetic drugs and and not feeling anymore. I didn't want to feel the the pain. I didn't want to feel better. I I just wanted to go. How did you survive? Care, family. I I had found. Uh, the support that I'd wish I'd known about prior. Um, I, I say my mom's my best friend, and every time I get to speak publicly, I give a shout out to my mom, so I love you. Um, so she's she, listening today? I'm sure she is. She's, <laughs> she's the, the epitome of the proud mom. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the messages now. Um, so there, there's, the, there's a care plan, and it, it, didn't, it didn't necessarily have to involve you know deep counseling or, or psychiatry um, sometimes the stigma of mental illness is I have to lay on the couch and tell the doctor how I feel and that's not always the case there is fun psychiatry there is fun counseling there's also meditation there's yoga there are ways to treat your mind by adjusting the thought process and it's not something that's going to happen overnight the the 75 year old gentleman who emailed us is not going to be better tomorrow the the mother emailing us with her 14 year old he's not going to miraculously just come out 
out of, um, of of his mood or his you know mental illness tomorrow and be all better once we talk about it. But until we start the conversation and prevent suicide, we'll we'll stop having to intervene on these things. Dr. Hamid, you said that uh, you've been using the figure 90 to 95 percent of people who uh, attempt suicide or uh, complete suicide uh, have a, a, a mental illness. Those figures, people will probably hear that and say, oh, that can't be. That's way too high. But that goes back to the stigma part that people will not admit because we've been taught maybe not in the last 10 or 15 years or so but growing up we were taught oh don't you're out you're weak you know that you can if just you know suck it up you know pull your boat if you're going to use all the cliches pull yourself up by the bootstraps no one will admit that they have a mental illness. I shouldn't say no one. I'm making a general statement. There are few people who admit that. They don't, even their parents or the people around them will say, come on, you know, what do you have to be sad about? You know, and many times they don't get the help they need. Uh, absolutely. Let me just come back and repeat myself. Um, people who commit suicide, 90 to 95% have a diagnosable or treatable mental health. Not all folks, patients who have mental health issues attempt or complete suicide. So that, that's the starting point. I want folks to hear that very, very clearly. Um, coming to your question is get your act together, get out of it, snap out of it. It's very unfortunate. The stigma is still there. Uh, for example, mental health disorders. Let's talk about uh, major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. There are many factors involved. There's a genetic predisposition. There is neurochemical imbalance. There is structural abnormalities. Um, there are situations. Uh, there are, uh, um, um, uh, 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 there are, um, as, as mentioned, um, uh, other um, factors that are involved. So the accumulation of all of these factors um, can does lead to somebody suffering from mood or anxiety symptomatology. Putting it on them, okay, snap out of it is very, very unfair. That, that, that almost yes. perpetuates the it's, thing it's, of your week. Yes, it's yeah. very unfair. And educating, educating our public and our folks about mental illness is the starting point over here. Help is there. It's uh, some, at times, I, actually, let me go back. Mental illness is not something that people control. It happens, and it happens because of multiple factors. Um, and uh, just saying get out of it or snap out of it is absolutely unfair. Only folks who go through it can tell you that they were doing their level best, but there was something that just could not make them feel better. So folks who, who don't suffer from it, who have not um, um, have a, a relative or a loved one who has suffered, it's very difficult for them to understand. But fact of the matter is um, there are multiple reasons for it and it happens, and the more we educate, the better things would be for everybody who's involved. And this goes along with the, the stigma as well. I had a gentleman on the program uh, a while back who actually had written about it and said that uh, his, his daughter suffered from mental illness. Um, so if his daughter had cancer, if his daughter had a, a, a heart condition, 
people would come up to him and say, how's your daughter doing? Is there anything we can do? Can we help you? How's she doing? You know, very concerned. But they never come up to him and say, we know your daughter suffering uh, with a mental illness. What can we do? What can we do to help? And that, they, they, people just don't talk about it. And why is that? The, the, there's a reason for that. There's the stigma that the, the caretaker has put on themselves as well. You know, I, my mom's very proud of me. Does she want to go to the mountaintops and scream, my son suffers from depression or bipolar disorder? You know, some parents have, they attach that stigma and they don't want to go to church and they don't want to go into their workplace and say, oh, I'm, I have to care for my depressed daughter because we're not talking about it. We're, there's not enough conversation. We, we do our walks and we do our fundraising events and they are primarily people who have loss. They are survivors of suicide loss. There are some people and it's growing in numbers who are just there to support the cause. There there has to be the conversation. Again, I, I, I can't stress the, that enough. You and I sitting here talking about it today, you know, doctor from a clinical standpoint and me as a volunteer for this chapter being involved there, we have to talk about it beforehand so that the parents are prepared for when their 14-year-old child is officially diagnosed. You're absolutely right. And, and I think as, as a society, we need to come to term that again, uh, when somebody has a cancer or diabetes or hypertension, how is that different than depression, anxiety, or schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder, or substance use and abuse disorder? Again, just because that at times we cannot identify a very, very specific gene or chromosome or does not make it any different. It's exactly the same thing. Impairment. We talk about, uh, this is a program about suicide, uh, suicide and suicidality. The annual burden for suicide, completed suicide, is about $44 billion. That's a lot of burden. So we, we if, uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because, again, we talk about diabetes, we talk about hypertension, we talk about uh, cancers, and we talk about dollars and cents. People also need to understand that again. There is there is this. It's it's the financial burden is all the same as other medical illnesses too. So we should be having this frank conversation. Exactly. I want to talk about. Actually, we have a caller who has a question about finances in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about suicide, suicide prevention on today's Smart Talk. Our guest, Brandon Marcico, who is the board chair of the South Central Pennsylvania chapter of the American Federation, or excuse me, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and Dr. Ahmad Hamid, a psychiatrist and director of the adult residency program at the Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center's College of Medicine. Question or comment story to tell? 1-800- this is a rebroadcast of Smart Talk. We're not taking calls this hour, but we welcome your thoughts at WITF.org. Go to WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. One of the things I definitely want to get into are some of the signs that people can look for. That's one of the most important messages I think that we can get out today. But uh, let's take another phone call. We have Judith from Edders. Judith, you're on the air. Thank you. Um, I suffer from PTSD from... um, severe abuse when I was young and when I seek help my problem is that even I have private insurance 
and it, through my husband. And if I, if they let me go in to pay for it, then what happens is if I'm doing well, they say she doesn't need to be in because she's doing well. If I'm working on my issues and trying to deal with the flashbacks and so forth, if I'm not getting well, in their opinion, then I shouldn't be there because I'm not getting well. And so there's a reason for them to deny me coverage, whether I'm getting well or not getting well. And I simply don't have access to the care I need inpatient sometimes when things are really bad. And I'm not sure people, when they're looking at the mental health issue, are looking at inpatient coverage as much as they're looking at outpatient coverage. And everybody says, go to the hospital, but how do you pay for it? And that's my... Uh, well, Judith, we're going to keep you on the line in case uh, the, the doctor has a, has a question for you. Uh, Ma'am, I, I understand um, and uh, I agree with you, um, but uh, as you mentioned, um, it's not an issue of inpatient or outpatient. In, inpatient we generally, uh, and I'm just using the general terms, um, is used uh, to decrease the acute stress, and outpatient is where, where the longitudinal uh, treatments are. Um, so uh, emphasis and the importance of outpatient treatment cannot be um, uh, decreased in, in these situations. Uh, getting longitudinal outpatient treatment with uh, crisis management on the inpatient, medication adjustment on the inpatient, uh, most probably is um, uh, the standardized treatment. And again, having good relationship with your outpatient providers, both the therapist or the psychiatrist, whosoever you're working with, um, would be very, very uh, essential to your long-term recovery. But she sounds like she's doing everything right, but she's not getting the kind of... It's being and, and Judith, correct me if I'm if I'm describing this incorrectly, but it it sounds as if when you are in a crisis or you need help, uh, someone is judging that you don't, and yes. that they you know send you on your way. The, Judith, yes. that's very unfortunate. That's very unfortunate, and I think um, uh, it's it's important. Um, for whosoever is making those decisions to look at the bigger picture and see what's right for you. Absolutely. And another thing for you, Judith, um, you know, on, on a less clinical or medical side of it, you know, if, if you truly feel like you broke your ankle and your doctor says it's not broken after just looking at you and shaking it twice, you're going to go elsewhere, you might seek a second opinion, perhaps uh, maybe you've outgrown your care and it might be worth for you looking into something a little bit uh, more in depth, um, perhaps for, for your situation, not sure, um, because of course we don't know each other, but it might be worth for you to start looking at something a little bit bigger than what you're in now. Hey, Judith, our thoughts are with you, okay? Okay. It All gets right. better, Judith. I'm glad you called in. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judith. Um, before we get a couple more phone calls, but before we get to the, the, the phones, I want to go over some of the signs that uh, people who are uh, considering suicide, or thought, thinking about suicide, thinking about uh, taking their own life, some of the signs that they exhibit, and then what those who are observing those signs, what they can do. Okay. Um, I, I think... An important thing uh, on to remember is uh, folks who are thinking of uh, um, suicide uh, have thoughts 
negative thoughts. They have low self-esteem. They feel the world is crumbling on them. They are unable to handle things. Uh, they want to be left alone. They isolate a lot. Their mood is low. Um, people who are observing them see a dramatic change in the functioning. Somebody who was working has stopped working. Somebody who was an outgoing person has started isolating themselves. Somebody who was active uh, uh, has become inactive. Um, they might be thinking of, uh, they might be, uh, again, uh, at a different level, people who are planning it start organizing themselves. Wills are written. Uh, things are bought. Things are organized in a way that once they go, things are taken care of. So these, are, in addition to mental health issues, are important things that family members, loved ones need need to keep an eye on. Giving things away. Giving yes, things away. Saying like goodbyes. That. Yes. Uh, getting your um, things organized uh, is, is something when somebody is uh, suffering uh, from mood and anxiety symptoms for, for, for times when they start doing these things. Buying a firearm, as, as we mentioned earlier, buying a firearm, uh, there are, again, I uh, throw the data out, there are data out there that uh, the risk of uh, completing a suicide after a recent purchase of a firearm is the highest. I know Pennsylvania is a, 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 a hunting state, but you cannot, I, again, I can't emphasize uh, on this fact. If you have a loved one who is suffering from mood, anxiety, um, um, uh, other mental health disorders, and they have, uh, and you're worried about them, and they have, they are not getting better. And if they have firearms in the house, it is very, very important to get those firearms out or ha have them in a place where they, uh, the person who is going through all of these issues, does not have access to it. But these are important uh, things that we do. And restricting the means is a, a complete separate conversation and every time we talk about uh, death by firearm, I, this is not a conversation about gun control. This is not AFSP or any any psychiatric no. organization saying we need gun control. This is restrict the means. If you have a loved one who is an avid hunter and there's access to guns in the home and they've talked about suicide, they're behaving suicidal or their mood has become lessened, that might be a time to restrict their means and again it's it's uh, the advice is similar to somebody who does not have firearm and is taking large amounts of medications so maybe pain medications maybe anxiety medicines and you really don't want that person to have access to a 30-day supply of x number of pills you need to make sure that those medicines are dispensed in a short order so even if they overdose, the consequences of those overdoses are not as severe as overdosing on large number of pills. Absolutely. So, Brendan, now can I interrupt for a sure. second because I'm starting to run a little bit low on time? But uh, again, I think this is one of the most important aspects. The, the uh, signs that uh, Dr. Hamid had described. If someone is noticing those signs, what can they do? A family member, a friend, an acquaintance, even someone who's a stranger. Reach out. 
talk to that person. Um, it, it's not necessarily a quote unquote cry for help, but if somebody is talking about suicide, there's a reason for that. And I think they want to talk to somebody about it. Do you need to get them directly to the emergency room? It's recommended. Do you, do you know, speak into a crisis hotline? But sometimes if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I'm feeling very suicidal, there's a reason they're coming to you about it. Take it very seriously. If you need help, you can call any one of the, the numerous crisis hotlines or the 800 273 talk once again um, but take it seriously do not don't don't walk next year with us because you've lost your loved one to suicide and, get a grab on it and one more thing and I would like to add this um, calling somebody for help um, is does not get you in any legal trouble it's important sometimes people are afraid of calling 911 emergency thinking that they will get into legal trouble for what they are thinking that is not the case Correct. that is absolutely not the case so if you or your loved one are struggling and you're worried about something please uh, call the crisis, call emergency, call all the numbers, and again, it's 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 the start of uh, preventing and un, uh, preventing uh, an attempt down the road. Let's uh, take a few phone calls here. Bill is in Mount Gretna. Bill, you're on the air. Hello, Bill. Okay, guess Bill's no longer there. Let's go to Stephanie, who's in Lebanon. Stephanie, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Good morning. So, this is one of my passions. Um, I am an old ICU nurse and also a nurse practitioner now, and I experienced depression from both sides, both with friends and um, people I've never met before in my life. So um, I, here is my main issue. I'm so passionate about it that I'm thinking about getting a, um, my postmasters in um, psych so that I can help more. Um, the issue that I have is that it is so hard to get in with somebody um, people burn out easily in psych. It's not an it's it, psych providers burn out easily. It's it's not an easy profession. It's not like one two three and you're cured. Um, the other part of it is that I'm noticing more, and is that uh, primary care providers are now charged and with um, dealing with this firsthand. I don't have a problem with it. But a lot of primary care providers are not comfortable with it, are not sure which way to go, know that the person is, you know, if they're still somewhat functioning and not suicidal, there's a whole big arena in there that you have to treat. And I've seen people in the hospital who said they're, they're going to kill themselves, they go to the ER, and they're turned back home. So how do you feel about primary care people dealing with this on the first tier or the second tier or the third tier? And why are we sending people home that say they're going to kill themselves? Hey, Stephanie, thank you very much for your call. She brought up a lot of issues there. Okay. Um, yes. Um, Stephanie, thank you very much. Uh, um, I would agree with you. Um, there, let's start with following. There is definitely shortage of mental health provider across the country, and Pennsylvania is no exception. That's absolutely can, true. Can I interrupt for one second? Yes. If I want to get an appointment with you, how long would it take me? Okay. Uh, again, we at Penn State, uh, depending on uh, on the crisis, we screen, we evaluate, and then again, if we need to bring you in sooner, we we would be able so to. So far, in a crisis, I, you, I you are absolutely in. crisis. And again, we work with the emergency room at uh, Penn, uh, uh, Hershey Medical Center and Penn State. And if somebody needs to be seen sooner, our outpatient services, which are at Northeast Drive, wonderful services. We also uh, work together with uh, Pennsylvania. 
Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. They have uh, set up at uh, uh, downtown hospitals. We can work to get you in sooner. Um, again, saying that uh, 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 we could turn around for everybody that calls us for everything within 24 hours and we could most probably would not be true but again depending on the situation and crisis we we do take um, our patients health and uh, safety very very seriously um, we are trying to bring in more folks um, I, I run I'm uh, the education at uh, uh, in the Department of Psychiatry, we are trying to encourage more medical students to go into the field of psychiatry. We have a wonderful PA program, which just started a couple of years ago. We are trying to uh, bring more folks into psychiatry. We are doing everything, but again, fact of the matter is there is shortage of mental health provider across the country. And powers-to-be need to take that into account. Uh, and uh, we need to work towards that. Coming to what Stephanie said with regards to primary care providers, primary care providers are at the forefront of this. And again, if somebody's sad and depressed, they would generally go to primary care provider uh, rather than uh, uh, a psychiatrist because of the shortage. Uh, education of primary care provider, liaison between primary care provider and mental health services, a psychiatrist, having this uh, combined uh, <laughs> Uh, um, uh, resources um, is is uh, the key to where uh, how we would manage mental health patients down the road, especially mental health patients who are in crisis. We have about three minutes left, two minutes left, actually. I'm trying to squeeze another call in. Liz is in Allentown. Liz, you're on the air. Only have a minute or so left. Um, yes, I'm calling about the 10 to 14-year-old statistic, which is shocking and very sad. Um, in particular, uh, I was wondering about years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, they used to have peer-to-peer -peer counseling in the high schools. Um, I mean, th those were not professionals, I know, but is anything like that going on? Um, I know today there's Internet bullying, there's shaming in the schools, you know, way more than there used to be, yeah. I think. All right, Liz, um, thank you very much for your call. Anything like that today, peer-to-peer? -peer? There, there are definitely programs there. We can, at, at AFSP, we can personally team up with educators, um, those who are running student council organizations, peer helper organizations, and there are also peer-to-peer -peer support groups available. Uh, you can find them at AFSP.org right here in central Pennsylvania. Okay. By the way, we do have that crisis number uh, on our website, WITF.org. It's bold. There's also a link to uh, some of the other resources. Uh, so if you are in a crisis situation or maybe you just have a question, you know, th there is that. Uh, gentlemen, again, thank you very much for being with us today. We only have about 40 seconds left. Uh, Dr. Mead, if you quickly could leave a message with our audience, what would it be? Um, for all the listeners, um and, and for folks who, who are um, suffering or have a loved one who is suffering. Um, I, I just want you um, to be aware. Help is out there. Please go um, utilize those help and resources. It would, it would and again, it's, it's out there. And as you mentioned, uh, we are here to help and answer any and all questions that you, you might have. 
Absolutely. Suicide is preventable. Start the conversation and join us in Carlisle uh, to help prevent suicide. Our guest today, I want to thank him very much, Dr. Ahmad Hamid, who is an associate professor and vice chair of education department at the Hershey Medical Centers, Penn State Hershey Medical Centers College of Medicine, and, and Brandon Marsico, excuse me, Marsico, who is uh, the board chair of the South Central Pennsylvania chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott.